Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Our podcast is now available through Audible and Amazon Music. Both of these apps are also a place where you can write a review. I hope you'll consider leaving a review about what you enjoy. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. Each month, we feature case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We're interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at organomy.org or adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com. This episode features the audio from one of our webinar presentations where I presented the case of Barry and my first appointment with him. I decided to present his case because working with him helped me to be clear about the need to address a patient's health as well as his problems and pathologic tendencies. Also, because our first appointment was so moving for us both. Following the presentation, D. Apple, PhD, and Jackie Bosworth, MD, joined me for discussion with questions from the webinar audience. As psychiatrists, we often focus on our patient's illness, part of them that is not functioning well, and how this causes problems in their lives. We must also be aware, just as importantly, of the health in our patients. We need to see both clearly to treat them effectively. Barry is a 25-year-old engineer who I've been working with for some time now, but today I want to tell you about my first appointment with him. Barry called and left a message on my phone stating only that he was feeling anxious and would like an appointment. I called him back and asked to hear more about what was bothering him. Dr. Burrett, I've been feeling anxious, you know? I don't know why, I can feel my heart race and I feel tense. And as he said this, it struck me how nonchalant he sounded. He didn't sound anxious at all. How long has this been going on, I asked. Well, I felt anxious off and on, and I've been in therapy, which was helpful at first. I've been feeling more anxious now. I'd like to explore with you what's going on and how I can do things differently. How is it affecting your work and relationships, Barry? Well, I have a girlfriend. He sounded as if he was responding to a census questionnaire. I was struck by how he said so little, and in what he said, I had no sense for what was actually going on. We decided to schedule an initial appointment. A few days later, Barry walked into my office and then paused after shutting the door, realizing it didn't completely close. After a moment, he pushed it shut. As I saw him look around the room with his back towards me, I told him he could have a seat on the couch. I wasn't sure if he was curious or anxious, but I had the impulse to give him direction. He was a tall, good-looking young man, but he dressed casually in workout clothing, and he had a softness to his musculature that made him look a bit boyish. His slumped posture prevented him from looking confident and proud, despite his height. His eyes showed intensity and anxiety, while the rest of his face showed little, other than a tendency to smile. He had a pleasant smile, and it could distract one from seeing his discomfort and emotion. Barry again started to tell me 
that he'd been feeling anxious and wasn't sure how to handle it. Barry, it would help me to hear what's going on in your life. How's your work going? He told me that he was doing well, enjoyed it, but he always had a nagging feeling that he could be doing better. Dr. Burrett, the lead engineer isn't much of a talker. He doesn't complain about me or anything. I think I'd just like something more to know how I'm doing. Then Perry paused for a moment and he looked at me in a serious manner. Feedback goes a long way for me. Barry, you mentioned your relationship briefly on the phone. Can you tell me about this woman? What's her name? Her name's Maria. We recently moved in together. I didn't pick up on any emotion, but just the change in volume. Barry moved in with his girlfriend of two years and the relationship was deepening. They'd begun to speak of marriage. Dr. Burrett, I'm more anxious than ever. What do you mean exactly, Barry? Sometimes I can't stand to be around her. I feel physically tense, unsure of what to do or say, as if I'm a bother to her. And as I listened to him, I watched as his body became more tense and his eyes widened. Maria is patient and understanding, but I don't know if we've made the right decision. And as he went on, it started to feel less like a discussion and more like a monologue. Should we have really moved in together? Was it too quick? What if we break up? And as he spoke, he appeared less tense and less present. He was intelligent and he could think and think and think, thereby losing touch with his feelings. As I listened to Barry discuss his relationship with his girlfriend, I had an inkling of his depth, but I didn't feel in a visceral way. It was as if it was buried below all his thinking. He told me how actually Maria had wanted to move in sooner, but they'd actually only done so recently when he finally agreed. As he told me this, I sensed a tendency to control the situation, what he was going through, but somewhat hidden by his righteousness. It wasn't like he was saying, it's my way or the highway, but rather, let's think this through. Let's do the right thing. In hopes of getting a better sense of his emotional life, I looked at Barry and I asked, are you two in love? He began theorizing on what the word love really means. He replied with no change in his facial expression. People say they love pizza. I love my dog. I felt like he was controlling his feelings by not getting into the substance of the situation. I could feel him holding back. And I felt like now is the time to challenge his intellectualizing. I smiled at him warmly and being frank and non-critical said, huh? Barry, what do you feel? What's in your chest when you're with her? What does your gut tell you? I feel like it's an honor to be with her. She's special. I was struck by the absence of pure emotion. He mentioned that in a prior relationship, he had felt in love, but then the relationship didn't work out. In essence, he had made a mistake. He didn't say so, but I had the impression that he gave into his emotional side with this woman, and he felt this had been their undoing. This reinforced the sense I had that he was actually a deeply emotional person, sensitive and with depth, but I couldn't see it and I couldn't feel it. Where was his feeling, I thought to myself. 
he had characterized his interest in therapy as almost an intellectual pursuit. At first on the phone, he had spoken of a problem he wanted to address, but he wasn't aware of what truly was going on with his emotions. Barry, how do you feel about the possibility that you and Maria turn out really well? I saw his forehead wrinkle and he was a bit taken back. He paused though, and then responded with an air of indifference. Things could always be better. You mentioned your doubts and your concerns about things not working out, Barry. What if they do work out? How would you feel about that? I could feel him dig in. I have high expectations for others, but especially myself. Things could always be better. I looked at him and said, Barry, I know I just met you, but I think you can handle the pressure. I saw a subtle change in his eyes, but it was only there for a flash. What are you feeling? I feel like you get me. I feel like I could cry. His forehead relaxed, his face flushed and his mouth opened slightly. I thought for a moment, here was this good looking, hardworking, decent young man who just wanted to do right by his girlfriend. He was afraid he couldn't cut it. He didn't realize how decent and good he was because nobody let him know, or perhaps they did, and he couldn't hear it. I looked at him and said, Barry, you're doing a good job. He began to cry softly, allowing a few tears to fall. After a few seconds, he got up, plucked out a tissue, and wiped away his tears. You don't have to wipe anything away. It's okay. As tears continued to fall from his eyes, he looked at me and said, this is only our first appointment. He wiped his eyes again and his smile appeared with a chuckle. I chose not to laugh with him at this point. It would have allowed him to get away from his serious love feelings and his deeply felt responsibility to his girlfriend. Barry, Maria is lucky to have you. And with that, he began to sob. He sobbed and sobbed. His chest heaved and tears poured from his eyes. And Barry was no longer stuck up in his head. He was in touch with himself and with me. How do you feel after hearing this case? What do you think? When I listen to this description of our first appointment again, I'm reminded about how responsible and genuinely decent Barry is. He's a good guy. It also reminded me of a patient I'm working with who needed to hear that part of why he was struggling was because of his acutely sensitive and healthy perception of the world around him. Sometimes it was too much to bear when he saw or heard something disturbing or sickening but this experience was a sign of his health, not of something being wrong with him. Now let's hear the discussion. I see we already have some questions from our audience and I hope we'll continue to get more. Here's the first one. <clears throat> Dr. Barrett, the title of your presentation is identifying the health in a patient. 
I don't hear many psychiatrists or therapists speaking about a patient's health. How do you define health and why, does, why is it so important when working with a patient's problems? That's an excellent question. So when we speak of health, we really mean being able to tolerate spontaneous feelings and, and sensations. So being able to contract and expand spontaneously. And so when Reich did his work many years ago, he identified being able to fully give in in the sexual embrace. And we mean that, but we also mean being able to fully express oneself and fully feel what's going on in, in one's body and in the environment around them. Um, and what I would add these days, probably more than ever, is, is to know when to express one's feelings. So it is healthy to be able to hold on to what one is feeling and to know when to express that, the right timing. That's something that we've you know, noticed as society has changed and people are more likely to express anything. But when we talk about health, we mean any impulse that comes from our natural core, our healthy nature, and allowing that expression and not letting it become distorted by any kind of armor that we may have. I have one thought about it, which strikes me that uh, as far as I know, I think organomy is the only or at least one of the very few um, systems of, of uh, thought about psychiatry where there is a definition of health uh, as opposed to what most other systems do is link a lot or list a lot of problems and then health is basically the, the absence of those problems or um, not many of those problems as opposed to stating clearly like Dr. Barrett just did what health actually is. So I think that's a very important difference. Right, it's more than the absence of symptoms. And I think as medical ergonomists, we have a roadmap that can mean all the difference for our patients beyond just getting rid of symptoms. So for Barry's uh, situation, um, if we talk about emotional expansion and contraction, he was having difficulty allowing himself to expand to feel the pleasure of his deepening relationship. One thing that's kind of refreshing working with him is that he's kind of old fashioned in the sense that he had a deep sense of commitment and love, but he had trouble just allowing himself to feel that pleasure. Um, you know, responsibility before pleasure, for instance, uh, where now as we see society change, it, it almost becomes a reverse. Um, so um, if we talk about emotional expansion and contraction, that's where I saw Barry having difficulty. Well, another question from our audience. Dr. Barrett, you mentioned more than once what you felt or what you didn't feel in your description of your first appointment. What is, it, what is the significance of the therapist's feeling in therapy? So I think oftentimes um, in therapy, uh, a psychiatrist's own feelings are probably the most important at, at many times. So with Barry, what, was, what stood out to me was that I couldn't feel very much about what was going on and I wanted to make sure we could have some connection. So it was more important for me to have a shared emotional connection than to find out more details about the, his work or his background, his childhood, his education, or even the details necessarily of the romantic relationship. 
uh, but just to have some sense of where he was emotionally. And what I picked up on was he was a little bit controlling in a sense that he limited what he shared. The amount of information was really stood out. He said very little. And, and then with what he did, uh, he only started to show some of that actual anxiety, some of that tension when he began to speak of his relationship. And that allowed me to know that we were going in the right direction. You know, for instance, if we say work and love are two important functions of a person, I picked up that his work was important, but it was his love relationship that brought him into the office. And then as I could see his body change, you know, his eyes, there was a flash. It wasn't obvious what it was, but I had a sense that we were moving in the right directions with my questions. And that kind of helped guide me. Um, and then as I could actually feel him, you know, feel some of that softness come out, um, it confirmed, you know, some of my uh, initial guesses in a sense. Thank you, Dr. Barry. Uh, Dr. Apple, actually, one thing I was thinking, so that was with Barry, but then you could also um, say it's important to be in touch with your feelings because someone can express something, uh, they can express sadness or crying, and that may actually not be what needs to be expressed at that moment in therapy. That actually may be a defense against other emotions. And so if we're not in tune or in touch with that sadness, something feels off, that's a sense that maybe it needs to be stopped or we need to clarify something uh, because we need to know if an emotional expression is a defense or a natural healthy impulse that needs to be allowed to come forward. So I think that that didn't come up in Barry's situation, but I, I think that can be um, very important in other situations. Yes, if you were um, just as up in your head, so to speak, or intellectual as Barry was, there'd be no way that you would be able to make that kind of distinction about his feelings. Correct. Speaking of which, here's a question that fits right into that uh, point. You described Barry as prone to intellectualization or thinking a lot. Do you come across that with other patients? Why is that a problem? Um, Dr. Bosworth? Yes. Um, so feelings and emotions are over and over again shown to be key determinants in affecting change. Understanding why off, often serves to dismiss the behavior or the feeling instead of making contact with it. So, for example, a patient of mine said to me, oh, I have those negative thoughts about myself because my father always told me I couldn't do anything right. Now, that might be 100% true but it doesn't help the patient to stop putting himself down. And once he was able to make a deep gut level connection with how utterly miserable and furious it made him feel in his life, then he was able to change. Then he was able to stop that behavior. Here's a new question from the audience for Dr. Barrett. Dr. Barrett, thank you for offering us this moving case vignette. You mentioned a healthy core in your response to the first question. How would you define what is a healthy core? So when we talk about a healthy core, one's nature, 
Um, so for instance, when we talk about the, the three layers of, of a person, we talk about their healthy core or nature, their secondary layer or character, and then their, their facade or uh, their superficial layer to the world. When we talk about their nature, we talk about um, whatever it is, their protoplasm that they were born with and whatever features comes along with that. And so it doesn't mean when we talk about health, you know, it's this ideal that is actually different for everyone. It's not there's this healthy person, uh, but but the health in all of us can look very different. So, um, you know, you can have a very driven man who's uh, capable of leadership and, and taking control and that can become twisted and he can become pushy and, and um, unyielding. And so his part of his healthy core is being able to take charge and to be able to retain a charge, you know, to, to um, be responsible for whatever he is in charge of. Um, so when we talk about a healthy core, we really mean whatever any individual has inside of them um, that they were born with and that um, needs expression. And oftentimes uh, when a patient comes to us with a complaint, um, it's related to their health. So for instance, Barry had a deep sense of responsibility and there's a lot of health in, in being responsible, but it could become twisted where the responsibility became a burden and interfered with him just being able to enjoy his relationship. So uh, maybe Dr. Apple, you could add more, but I mean, it, it's different for every person and it's whatever healthy impulses can come out. Actually, there's another question that fits right in there and I can add that and, and we can all talk about it. Uh, Dr. Barrett, you mentioned how responsible Barry was. What are some other traits or quality qualities you think of as indicating more health in a person? And can you also address how those same qualities might get in the way of the person's health? Yeah, so that, that was along the lines of what I was saying, which is that I don't think there's a specific characteristic that means that's healthy, um, but, but curiosity to um, gentleness, to any feature or trait that someone can have can be part of someone's healthy core and it can also become a problem. So for instance, like I, I mentioned, if someone's driven, their drive can interfere with uh, their relationships, but it could also be capable, allow them to be capable of, of doing tremendous things. Uh, someone who's uh, kind and mild-mannered, that can be, become twisted and they can become unable to exert their assertiveness or their healthy aggression. But there are some people who are, tend to be more mild-mannered and more driven and, and um, excitable. So it's really different for each person. So the point is that health does not look the same for, for different individuals. It, it, it's just as varied as the, the number of people that we meet. I think it's interesting to extend what you're saying to um, sort of the realm of relationships and couples too, because a lot of times a person can have a certain trait that might be a very healthy trait if they're able to find the right person who can receive that and encourage that healthy trait as opposed to uh, ending up with someone who might actually take advantage of that trait. Uh, using your example of someone who's really responsible, you always hear 
they're givers and they're takers. And a lot of our patients I find in couples therapy end up with someone where one, one person is uh, really giving a lot and spending a lot of their energy attending to the other person's health and problems, but the other person doesn't meet them in a sort of a mutual way, mutually satisfying way. And that becomes part of the issue in either one of their individual therapies or the couples therapy. It really works well when someone obviously finds someone who can receive the healthy traits they have and bring those out in the right proportion that's in a way that supports their partner's health um, without meaning or without taking advantage of that whether they mean to or not. Yeah, I like the way you, you put that. And you know, for instance, if, if there was a situation where there was a giver and a taker, the, the responsible one may be stuck in that role with someone who's a taker and, and just fit into that. And it would maybe prevent him from, from trying to step out of that and not be the respon you know, the responsible one. Um, so it would take a lot of work for both of them because they would both have to be addressing uh, part of themselves in their relationship. Right, because we all see relationships where they're sort of interdigitated and yes, it's hard to get them to back off from that and look at their own character traits and the contribution they're making to the health of the relationship or them individually. I see we have a new question. Okay, this is a question. Can you define what is meant by emotional contraction and expansion? So when we use the terms uh, expansion and contraction, we mean an energetic expansion and contraction. And the way we uh, perceive expansion and contraction is what we call emotions. So, you know, Dr. Apple, you mentioned how important it is to have uh, a definition of health, something to work toward other than the absence of symptoms. I actually think it's very helpful to have a definition of emotion that that's, I can use, you know? Um, you can look up definitions of emotion and they can be varied and tend to be intellectual actually and can be confusing, but to know that there's um, an emotional and energetic contraction and expansion that you can feel in your body and that you perceive as certain emotions and certain emotions are contractive emotions and others expansive. So pleasure would be the prime expansive emotion. Um, you're bringing yourself out into the world um, is felt as pleasure and you can contract an anxiety um, sadness can be a contracting um, emotion. And then with anxiety, what we find is it's not just contraction, but it's a reverse of, of, of the direction of, of one emotion. So in pleasure, it's contraction because you're contracting away from the pleasure. But with sadness, being a, an energetically contractive emotion, in anxiety, you're actually expanding against that contraction. And instead of feeling the sadness, you're only aware of the anxiety. So what we mean is an energetic movement. Um, I always think of anxiety as a push-pull. You know, you, you kind of want to embrace the emotion that's underlying it, but at the same time, you're fearful of it. So you're in a state of anxiety and back and forth, both contraction and expansion. Going back to what 
we were saying about emotions, um, this is so obvious, but uh, really bears saying if, if, if a therapist or a mother is not um, both in touch with, in contact with, but also comfortable enough with feeling what they're feeling, knowing what they have uh, in terms of their emotional uh, state, how can they ever be comfortable with their infant uh, and be able to read them accurately or the patient if you're uh, working with someone? If you can't stand to feel sadness, how can you, like Dr. Barrett did, not only allow but encourage the patient when they're ready to let go and, and, and weep or sob? Um, uh, there are a lot of therapies that would think of uh, weeping and sobbing as a problem and we have to develop some coping you know, resources to help people not feel what they're feeling. And they don't have, uh, I think, a bigger or deeper picture of, of expansion and contraction. I think that's very important. And it's also important uh, in terms of our program or training program, why all of the therapists at the College of Ergonomy undergo their own therapy. So we are aware of our feelings and work through things that would stop us from feeling what is there. And just on a lighter note, you know, I try to keep the tissues far away from the patients, just, you know, if they, if they have a cold or small with, with the pandemics and other situation, but, you know, if they're cold, there's tissues there, but I don't want them to just go toward tissues and wipe everything away. Um, That's a good point. I never really quite thought about it like that, that you could look at tissues, having them there is encouraging, but like you said, wiping feelings away is not really letting them come forth into the world, like you said. Okay, so here, here's another question. We've got some good ones and we have time for more. You mentioned Barry's facial expressions and body tension or the lack thereof. What is the significance of that? Dr. Bosworth, can you take that one? Sure. Um, so I think we all know that our bodies express things that we're not necessarily fully aware of. In fact, that's how the term body language came about. Um, sometimes we can be very aware of what we're feeling and consciously show it. For example, a hand gesture, which emphasizes your point. Um, but other times we're uncomfortable with the feeling. And so we hide it from ourselves. Um, and our body language then expresses those feelings. And that's something that the medical organ therapists is trained to pick up on. The importance of that being that it helps us to recognize the feelings a patient might need help either connecting to or, and or understanding. Um, well, what I would add to that is, so with, with Barry, for instance, I mentioned how I could see him becoming more tense and then less tense. And what I saw was that was his feeling coming out to the surface as he became more tense. And then as he thought and thought and thought, that was a contraction away from, um, away from the surface, away from me. And so he didn't need to have any physical tension. It was all in his brain. It was just a thought, you know. So 
that's what I saw with him and with other patients. It's a little bit different. Everybody has their own way, but you know, we find certain patients tend to uh, wrap up their feelings in their muscles and other patients in their thoughts and brain. Barry's interesting because it's not quite clear. You know, I'm still getting, um, I'm still working with him because he's very intelligent and he can think, but as I mentioned, and I still have this feeling that he actually has very deep uh, feelings and, and depth to him. Um, it's not all up in his brain. And so what level that way he, he to what level and extent he uses that defense uh, from his intolerance of his feelings, I'm not clear. And that's something I'll have to figure out as we continue to work together. I will add, he, he's doing well and he is developing a deeper, deeper relationship with his girlfriend. Um, I'll just leave it at that, but he's doing well. Got another very good question here. In fact, two of them I'll combine. One is, how do you work with patients who cannot tolerate their emotions? For example, a patient becomes very anxious when he feels the impulse to weep. And a second, uh, similar question is, what happens in a situation when a patient just can't cry and gets stuck? So every patient, it's hard to answer a general question, but every patient has um, a certain way that they need to be addressed. So uh, I, I guess I would just say if somebody's stuck, uh, it's not about forcing them to express themselves. It's not, you can't cry and all right, we're gonna force you to cry. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna push it out of you. Um, but for that patient, if they're stuck, it's addressing whatever the barrier is that allows that emotion to come out spontaneously. It's, you know, there's all kinds of therapies ever since um, Reich developed this therapy that all kinds of therapies about yelling or screaming or kicking and being emotional, but it's not about forcing it. It's about removing what is in the way of just allowing that spontaneous feeling to come out by itself. And sometimes uh, it seems like just being able to feel what the patient is feeling and maybe resonate that in your own feelings somehow communicate something to the patient that's different from most things they've experienced in relation to those feelings in the past and helps them soften and, and move towards opening up and expressing those feelings without doing anything. As Dr. Chris has said many times, don't just do something, stand there. I think that's very helpful. Yeah, or a human being, not human doing, you know? Um, I, I think also um, just knowing where the patient is and what they're able to handle is so very critical because, you know, you never want to push somebody beyond what they're able to deal with. And at the same time, you, you see all these things when you're working with the patient and you almost want to reach out and grab it. But um, just being in the moment and reflecting back on what that patient's feeling at that particular time with your own gestures and your own intonation can really help a person move in the direction that they want to go. One thing I was just thinking that I would add, if someone says or you have a sense that they can't tolerate their feelings, the details matter. So if somebody's telling you that, that may not be true. They may feel that they can't tolerate that. You know, they may be afraid of expressing that. 
And that's where it comes down to the patient, the, the doctor really knowing the patient to know whether they need to be encouraged and take a chance or if their perception is accurate and it just needs to be allowed to, to stay where it is and maybe it just is gonna be some time. Every situation is different. And then when we talk about you know different layers of a patient's emotional structure, sometimes you have feelings, for instance, that you cannot express something. If you, know, you may be frustrated that you cannot cry and get relief and that frustration has to be dealt with first before you can get to the underlying emotion. I love these questions we're getting. Here's one. How would you work with a teenager or a preteen when you try to identify the teen or preteen's health? Dr. Bosworth, do you want to start with that one? Um, sure. I, I, so people are people. There are certainly unique things about an adolescent or preteen um, that in some ways make it easier and in other ways make it more difficult. Um, there's certainly hormonal things that make charge, we talk about expansion and contraction, make it more intense. And sometimes that makes it easier to reach because it's right there on the surface, you see it. Um, other times, teenagers are shut down against the world because they're not adults and they're not children. And so they're in this sort of nether zone where they don't know how to take what's, what's coming at them. And that makes it harder because it's more difficult to reach. But the bottom line for me, at least, is, um, and I think for orgone therapists, is that um, we, we take what we see and we work with what we see. And um, observation is the key in that. And you treat an, an adolescent or a teenager the way you would treat any patient coming to you, um, other than somebody who's preverbal, <laughs> like an infant. I think by allowing uh, an adolescent to know the reason that things are so difficult. First, there's two things. First, it's just hard to be a teenager. And, and for them to know that there's an adult who gets that and can allow themselves to remember anything of their own adolescence and how difficulty puberty and that transition from dependence to independence is, I think can go a long way. But also to know why they're having, or how they're having difficulty is based on their healthy emotional impulses of their um, sexuality that's blossoming, their work function. Uh, there's a reason they're having a hard time. And for them to know that that's in some ways because of a good thing that they have some sense that they want more and that they want to be satisfied, uh, I think that can go a long way for an adolescent who's struggling. One audience member said, Dr. Barrett, I really enjoyed hearing how you connected with Barry about his fear of things turning out well. Does that happen often with patients? So I actually have quite a few patients who, in the beginning of therapy, that's, that's part of what's going on with them. But I would say more broadly, I think we all can have a degree of difficulty completely allowing ourselves to give into emotional 
and, and our emotions and sensations spontaneously. That is why, again, when Reich um, made his discoveries, he found that people who did well were allowed to give into themselves and give into their partner in the sexual embrace because that's just the ultimate expression of spontaneity and, and uh, feelings, and sensations, and emotions. So I guess I would say, um, yes, we all have it to a degree, but I, I do have patients who, for instance, their chief complaint um, or an initial problem is, is having difficulty feeling pleasure. And then there's the extreme example of masochism, someone who's completely uh, has difficulty having any kind of expansion. Um, but but I've come across it pretty frequently. Dr. Bosworth, Dr. Apple, what? I think just about all of us have some, um, I guess you could use the word like homeostasis or some level of functioning where we are um, most comfortable perhaps, but with problems and limitations. And as we start to make progress and things start to go better for us in our lives, we, we actually come up against the limits of what we can tolerate in terms of pleasure. And I've always found it very interesting when I'm talking with a patient and everything is going very well, but they have this terrible sort of, you know, vague feeling of anxiety. And they really can't put their finger on what's going on. And we go through all the, the things that have happened and some of their older patterns. And, you know, is this happening? No. Are you having trouble with this? No. Are you sleeping okay? Yeah. So everything is going really well. And you're very happy with your partner. Oh, very. More than ever. Your relationship, your intimate relationship is still being very satisfying. I can't even stand how exciting it is. Oh, and then to mention, sounds like you feel uneasy with how much satisfaction you're getting. And it leads to whatever's there. You know, some people will feel like they don't deserve to feel this happy. Um, how, can this, how can they be this happy when other people aren't? Or whatever is there. But I think um, we're probably more used to thinking about avoiding pain, uh, which we do. But... I think a lot of times people avoid pleasure just as much or strong, just as strongly. Here's one, pointing out a patient's health to the patient versus pointing out the pathology or blocks. What is the functional difference? So for me, um, I think you have to do both. And that's what I wanted to emphasize in my little introduction is that they're both important. Um, and which you do for which patient at, at a certain time, I think is important. And I don't know if I could explain, you know, theoretically why one would do one over the other, other than it's with Barry, I had a feel for that's the approach I had to take. I mean, part of him was my understanding of how he would take it if I pointed out his uh, difficulty, the way his character um, was affecting things negatively. Um, you know, he, he needed um, a bolster in his confidence and to know what he was doing well. He made it pretty clear to me. But there may be a time later on in therapy where I have to point out the other way. And I, I, I think it's just a feel. I, I know for other patients, I may point out something that they have to stop doing and, and you're firm with it and you're clear. 
um, but that's what they need to hear. So I think both are important and that at least the best I can answer right now is it's a field that, uh, to decide which, which you're gonna you know, focus on. Yeah, it all depends on where the person's at again and you know how you can best help them. Sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's the other. Yeah, I mean, the question, what is the functional difference actually implies the answer that, you know, when we think functionally, we're looking at the effect of what we do, not the plan or the mechanistic um, way one might go, you know, asking some, how many, how many questions about health or how many questions about blocks. It really depends on where that patient is, what helps move them towards opening up and going deeper. When I chose to, to pick this topic, you know, identifying the health in a patient, it, you know, there's a movement of positive psychology. And I think part of uh, when people talk about this stigma of mental health, that's what they're speaking to is that there's more to it than just problems. But I think even deeper than that is, is just recognizing that we all do have a healthy nature. And to make sure that we're clear on that and to identify it in a patient can make all the difference in their therapy. It's not just identifying their character and how things become twisted. Because if, if you are aware that things are being twisted, it helps you actually be clear on what their healthy nature is. You know, whether that's the, the bulldog or the antelope, you know, whatever, however they, they came into this world, I think uh, allowing the expression of that uh, is, makes all the difference for our patient. What do you think about these questions and answers? Have you ever been aware of a discomfort with pleasure in yourself? We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we'd love to have you join us for one of our webinars. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.